You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty Father, thank you for uh, your goodness and your loving kindness, and uh, thank you for sending Christ and Lord Christ, we give you thanks and praise for your redemptive work, um, that the good news of your redemption of our lives and of sin, that, that it has been done. And uh, pray that this uh, time would be uh, honoring and glorifying to Christ, that Christ would be seen and heard, and that uh, the hope of the gospel will be communicated. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, thanks so much for coming. Uh, the, this, this is a three-week series. Um, three-week series. It's going to be about hope and suffering. Um, I just uh, published a book called Therefore I Have Hope, 12 Truths That Comfort, Sustain, and Redeem in Tragedy. And uh, I, just, I love to talk and write about hope and suffering. Uh, I really I really do. Uh, largely because I kind of I, I, I kind of need to remember God's truth for myself. Um, but uh, so anyhow, what I'm going to do in these three weeks is I'm going to honestly talk about how, how different truths, um, scriptural truths, different truths related to the gospel, how they give us hope uh, in the midst of suffering, and in particular for people who, are, who live in fear of their worst nightmare, who live afraid of the what-ifs and are constantly kind of there, uh, basically talk about how we can prepare, the, prepare for that, but also talk about why we don't need to be afraid. And so um, to start, I, you know, I, um, so this, this is all, a lot, most of you know this, but there have been a lot of new people come to our church in the last four years, so I'll kind of recap this. Um, in 2013, my oldest child passed away, Cameron. He died suddenly, unexpectedly. And I would say a large part of the premise of this book has to do with what happened, what my mindset was before he died, and what my mindset was immediately after. Before he died, um, I kind of had this fear. Um, I'm a, you know, I've been a youth pastor. So I'm going into my 14th school year. Thought I'd be here for two. I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, you know, uh, when Gil, when I signed up, Gil's like said, you know, we really want three, and I, in my mind, I was like, yeah, right. Um, but I'm riding this train as far as she'll take me. Uh, I'm not hopping off this horse anytime soon. Um, Anyhow, uh, but, so, you know, if you're a youth pastor, you're telling kids that God is good, that God loves you, Jesus died for your sins, there's hope, heaven, all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, well, here's the thing. Uh, I uh, am a white American male who grew up with a nice Christian family uh, who had, you know, no financial concerns at all. I think I'd traveled internationally six times before I was in middle school. School came really easy for me, had nice friends, sports came easy for me. If you're me, then of course you believe that God is good, right? It's very easy for you to accept the claims of Christianity uh, and to tell other people, you know, this good news. Well, my fear was, what if something really bad happened? Um, you know, would I lose my faith? And if I did, would I be a total fraud uh, to all the kids in my youth group and, and you know, kids that I led and leave them high and dry spiritually? And so, um, so I would kind of think about what's the thing that could cause me to lose my faith. What is the thing that I could not take? And that was the death of my child. And, and at that time, I, you know, Hutch, I mean, sorry, Cameron was, 
Cameron was born in 2010. Mary Matthews was pretty new on the scene. She was, she was, uh, she, Cameron died about four days before her first birth, four days before her first birthday. And so, um, so I kind of had this, uh, fixation with if he died, then I would fall apart. And, you know, a lot of parents have this. It's not like a, a novel experience. Um, but, uh, so here's the thing about it. And I, it's interesting. One thing that's kind of cool is so I spent four and a half years writing this book. And it's like, even like last night as I'm preparing for this, um, I, I, uh, I, I'm even learning more and more and unpacking more and more about what God has done, um, done, you know, in my life, kind of taught me over the last four and a half years. And like, here's the book, you know, uh, in living color. But I think here's the thing. Here are the two false beliefs that I had before my son died. The first false belief that I had was that God can redeem first world problems, but God can't redeem really bad problems. You know, like, yeah, your girlfriend broke up with you. Um, you know, you've, you've had a failure or a disappointment. Maybe you're struggling a little bit financially. Yeah, God can redeem that. But really bad things like your kid dies or your husband drops dead or, you know, whatever it may be, or you yourself, uh, you know, kill someone in a drunk driving accident, whatever it is. Like God can handle the first world problems, but God can't handle the really, really awful problems. So that was the first underlying belief is, oh, if that happened, that's something that's beyond the reach of God's redemption. So that was the first false belief. The second false belief um, was that if, some, if something really bad happened, then I would not cling to Christ. Like, I wouldn't turn to Christ. Um, and so, so what I actually discovered um, was that that was not the case. And, uh, and this is not a, a, a story or a matter of spiritual competence or being strong at all. It's a matter of, like, God had been preparing me over the course of my entire life um, to cling to him and to have hope when my worst nightmare occurred. And so he died in his sleep without, without explanation. Um, children over the age of one just generally never die in their sleep. Uh, it's a one in a hundred thousand chance. And so I was on a camp out and when my lovely trophy wife, who just walked in the door. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, honey. Yeah. And you didn't, and you didn't wear the most salient dress you have to, you know, very bright. <laughs> um, yeah, but so when Lauren called me to, to tell me that Cameron was dead, um, I'd kind of had seen this, you know, in my worst nightmares before, what my reaction would be. And it was a reaction of like bitterness and anger and falling apart. And in turn, what very much surprised me that came out of my mouth um, was that uh, Jesus rose from the dead. That means that God is good. And that doesn't, this does not change that fact. And so I was very surprised. And what I was also surprised to find too was that um, even though I was in indescribable pain, um, I did in my soul have hope. I did, uh, I did have hope, and I did really trust Jesus, um, and which is not what I expected. And again, that's not a like I got it done spiritually kind of thing. It's a matter of um, the Lord through His Word and through His truth, and by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit, um, had prepared me and met me um, in that moment. And so, um, so anyhow, we, uh, so what the discovery was is that God can heal, can redeem anything. He can redeem, you know, awful things like the death of a child. Um, and that the, the word of God, particularly the gospel, enables us to cling to God. Um, and so I, I, 
I, so this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about God can can, can, can redeem really awful things. Um, it's the gospel and, and God's word that enables us uh, to cling to Christ and that the biggest mechanism by which God fosters hope, helps us cling, helps us find redemption is his word. Uh, that's the premise of this book, and we'll talk about that today. So we're going to look at Psalm 130. Um, sorry, it's a little small if you don't have your reading glasses. But we're going to look at Psalm 130. Um, short psalm, fantastic psalm, uh, and I'll read it here. Uh, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Okay, so first, the mess of redemption. Well, we're going to uh, go talk about the mess of redemption, the means of redemption, uh, and the method of redemption. Those are kind of your three points if you're a linear thinker like myself. Um, so the mess of redemption. Verses 1 and 2, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. Uh, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So, uh, first thing to see here is that uh, when the speaker in the psalm says, out of the depths, uh, what this means is he is basically saying, from the worst of the worst. Uh, so, you know, if, you, if we had a whole category of, you know, worst things you can imagine, and you were to grade those things from 1 to 10, with 10 being the very worst in that whole category, he is speaking from a level 10 type problem. Um, and something interesting about this psalm is it is a penitential psalm. What that means is that the speaker's mess is his own doing. Like, he has created his own mess as a product of his own sin. Um, and so I will say, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's, I don't know. I don't know which is worse. I don't know which is worse, to have, to be a victim um, of circumstances in your worst or to be the author of your circumstances in your worst. Um, you know, I, you know, my son died, thanks be to God, without any, we didn't do anything wrong. We, um, it's not, you know, we can't look back and say, oh, what if? I mean, he just went to bed perfectly healthy. He'd been to the doctor three days before. He was a perfectly healthy child. Um, and, you know, it was running around Clingman Commons, uh, you know, 12 hours before he died. And he just woke up dead in his bed. Um, there's nothing, we did not have any control of that. So I don't want to use the word victim, but uh, for us, it, we, it just it was a matter of our circumstances. And so this, this speaker, uh, his worst, which in the book, I, ref- I kind of have this term I use repeatedly called your worst. Which your worst is whatever your worst nightmare is, either in terms of like your... Um, anticipatory doom, or whatever your worst is in terms of something that you've actually gone through and that you are still healing from. Uh, and so, um, but this speaker is speaking from the worst. And you can see just the desperation um, in his voice, in that he, you know, he cry, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my voice of my plea. So th- he's saying the same thing three different times call that in Hebrew poetry parallelism, but that basically shows emphasis. It shows that uh, he is in, uh, he is very desperate and he's crying out to God. 
And so um, this uh, something else interesting. Out of the depths, that 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 is a term that has a, aquatic uh, connotations. So basically, this term, this Hebrew word, is used multiple times in the Psalms, and the the image is of that of someone who is on the bottom of the ocean, who's on the bottom of the ocean and they're drowning. And so uh, I I'm not I know all my students are familiar with this because they they're the ones who told me about this, but the deepest point in the ocean, it's called the Challenger Deep. It's in the Pacific Ocean, and it's 35,000 feet below the surface. That's how far down below. And so, you know, think about think about if you were in the Challenger Deep. If you were in the Challenger Deep, you'd already be dead. Like, as a matter of, like, physics and water pressure, like, there's really not much thinking to be done. It's over. Um, but let's say you were conscious, and, you know, like, you're, you have 35,000 feet between you and oxygen. Like, that is a feeling of great desperation. Like, that is, that is, uh, that is doom. Uh, and that, that's effectively where he is. Um, and so one of the things that I would say uh, that is very compelling and refreshing to me about Christianity uh, is that it really pulls no punches in the Bible. I mean, how many of you have ever tried to read not the Adventure Bible, not the Jesus Storybook Bible, but the real honest-to-goodness Bible to a four- or five-year-old? I mean, it's um, it's brutal, like it's brutal. I, I you know, I, I, I've been I've read uh, Genesis in the last month. I'm like, wow, okay. So we have the story at Sodom of uh, a Lot and his house, and there are men surrounding the house, demanding that he send all the men in his house out so that they can rape them. Like that's in the Bible, you know, that's there. Um, you go through the book of, I read, tried, I tried to read, honestly, the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel to my four-year-old. It's like, I think we're probably going to need to skip the part where a bunch of people in the village get their heads cut off. Like, can't, can't, not really probably going to go there. I mean, it is, it is real. There is, there is, you know, incest. There is deceit. There is violence. There is war. There is death. There is disease. There is everything under the sun. And the entire story of the Bible is about redemption and healing in all of those things. So what the Bible very clearly communicates is that God's redemption is not just for first world problems. It is for the worst things you can imagine. Um, and you know, think about the story, uh, give an example here, the story of Ruth. Okay, Ruth, uh, and you know, we have this romantic vision of you know, Ruth and Naomi and they're in the fields and oh, you know, here comes... You know, there's there's romance and all this kind of stuff. Oh, Naomi had two sons die and her husband die within two years. Like that's a tough pill to swallow, right? And so in that context, it means that she uh, has no means to provide for herself. She's going back to Israel, where there's a famine, and so she is likely walking back through the desert to Israel to die of starvation, most likely. Okay, and so this is a big problem. That's a big problem: losing two children, losing your husband, and facing starvation. That's a bad gig. But we see God come in and graciously meet her, provide for her, restore her life. And so, um, you know, something really compelling uh, is that the the Lord, uh, the the promises of the gospel, the promises of God of healing and redemption, they're not just limited to the little problems. Like anything, the worst thing you can imagine, 
no matter what it is that you have gone through in, in your past, that you're going through right now, like God can redeem it. I think that is particularly helpful as you for, for those of us who do a lot of, I call it anticipatory doom, you know, like thinking about the worst and so on and so forth, uh, is that, okay, yeah, all right, my mind goes there, and if that happens, that would be awful. But like the Lord's, the, the Lord's hand of redemption is long enough to meet me there and restore no matter what happens to me. So really, in that way, the Lord um, protects us from fear. Okay, so next, uh, the means of redemption. That's the challenger deep. There it is, everybody. <laughs> means of redemption. Okay, so the means of redemption, we see it in, the, in this psalm, uh, is the word of God. That is what uh, the, the very practical, concrete thing uh, that is the basis of the speaker having his hope restored. Um, you know, when we talk about the Bible, you know, in terms of what are the themes or what are the questions that are answered, in just very basic terms, first question is, who is God? Um, and, you know, in all of his holiness and all of his love, all of his different attributes. Um, who is man? That's a question that's answered. That talks to us about that. Um, another theme is the gospel. We see over and over again the same cycle. Human failure, divine grace. Human failure, divine grace. That's that's the Bible. If you need a hermeneutic through which, her, sorry, seminary word. If you need a lens through which to read the Bible, uh, the the human failure and divine grace and redemption is is pretty much the overarching story of it. And any story you can kind of see that. Most stories you can see that happening. Um, and then finally, you know, how man lives in relationship with God. How man lives in relationship with one another. And so we see here that, you know, he says that uh, in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. In his word I hope. Here's the thing, is it's not the word that redeems us, it's Jesus who redeems us, um, but the word is the thing, it's the bridge that connects us to the Lord, that reminds us about who God is uh, and what his nature is. And so you can see from the depths of woe, the speaker is remembering the attributes of God. He first says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So there he's talking about his holiness. God, you are morally perfect and pure. You, know, you um, if anyone comes into your presence in their sin, they are doomed. So he's remembering the holiness of God. Then he comes back and says, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So here he's remembering the love and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And so, you know, when we say um, that the word of God is the means of redemption, um, in this case, it is what the word tells the speaker about who God is. Um, so, uh, crazy story. Gosh, I told the story to the kids a couple weeks ago. And I was like, <laughs> and, then, uh, and I hadn't told this story, but we went to a retreat about 10 months after Cameron died, and it's a retreat just for couples um, who have lost children. And uh, I, I called it Collective Misery Weekend. <laughs> because, I mean, it was like story after story of just awful, uh, just unbelievable pain. And uh, this one couple, they had a, a college-age son die suddenly. The mom was with the daughter two hours away from home. And the dad calls the mom and tells her what had happened, that the son had died. And so the mom 
she has a two-hour drive in front of her with her daughter, who she has to tell, hey, your older brother has died. And, you know, what do you do? Like, what, as a parent, what do you do? First off, how do you drive? Um, I was fortunate when I got my news that, like, one of my absolute very best friends and my son's godson was actually there with me. And, like, he... He's like, can you drive? I'm like, I, I think, I think so. And he, and he like picks me up out of the car. And I like, I couldn't really walk very well. I was just like so shocked. I'm like, probably can't drive. But, um, but so the woman said, um, the woman said, what did she do for two hours? She said, for two hours, all I did, I told my daughter everything I know about who God is. I just went through everything I remembered about the Bible. And I just went through and I told her for two hours about who God is. And I would say that that is probably the most instrumental question. The most instrumental resource that you have is knowing truly who God is, not based on your experience. Not based on your experience. Let me say that loud and clear. Not based on your experience. That is, that is like so normative particularly in liberal Christianity, that who God is is based on our experience. Let me tell you, you are screwed. You are absolutely screwed if your view of who God is is based on your experience, okay? Because if you live in the fallen world, the chances are your experience is not going to communicate to you that God is good and that God is on your side. That is particularly true if you're a non-white American person living in the third world. If you're in Africa, if you're in Latin America, if you're in India, let me just tell you, there is nothing that communicates to you that God is good based on your experience, okay? But based on the person of Jesus and based on the word of God, he is definitely good. Like when we look at the cross, when we look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, like, of course he's on our side. Of course he's good. He cares so much about us that he sacrifices his son for our salvation, like, that is what the Word tells us about who God is. And so, with that being said, what is it that the speaker clings to? It is who he knows God to be through his Word. Forgive me, I got a little fired up there. My old Southern Baptist roots came out. Uh, yeah, totally. Sorry about that. Um, so, for myself, the title of this book is Therefore I Have Hope. It comes from Lamentations chapter 3, which was probably one of the two most important verses for me um, during the, the season of grief and loss um, that we're, you know, we're really still in and will be in forever. Um, so in Lamentations, Jeremiah is, um, Jeremiah is staring at anything worse than we can ever conceive of. All right, uh, Jerusalem has been conquered by the Babylonians. Um, people have been killed violently. People are starving to death to the point that they're eating, th- they're eating their own children. That's, 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 what, that's what he says in, in Jeremiah. Uh, sorry, in Lamentations. That's how bad it is, okay? And so if you've ever read this book, it's five chapters. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter four, chapter five are nothing but darkness. Nothing but the, the depths of human anguish. Chapter three, though, there is incredible hope. And so he says this, but this I call to mind, and there I have hope. Therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, 
to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So think about this. This I call to mind, right? He is relying on what he knows based on God's word about who God is. And from there, he remembers the love of God. He remembers the mercy of God. He remembers the faithfulness of God. And from that, he comes to this place of the Lord is my portion, meaning I am satisfied with God. Um, and therefore, I hope in him. So his faith, his trust in God has been restored by remembering who God is through his word. And so for me, um, for me, the, I, would, I would think about this, this verse a lot. But I'd also remember uh, Deuteronomy 32, 4. Uh, he is the rock. His works are perfect. And his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. A faithful God who does no wrong even when your child dies. A faithful God who does no wrong even when you've had five miscarriages. A faithful God who does no wrong even when your husband or your wife has left you. And so that is remembering who he is. People do wrong for sure. We know that. The world is fallen and very broken. We know that for sure. We live in that, right? But God himself, a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And so um, with that being said, what we see, you'll probably see me use this chart a lot. Um, uh, the graphic design is not very good because I did it myself, and uh, that is just not my gift. Um, but anyhow, but... Uh, you can see you know, about God, we kind of have this hard truth and we have this nice truth. Hard truth is, is kind of what we'd call the incommunicable attributes of God. It's these things about God that are so far beyond who we are, that God is perfect, that he's holy, um, that he is just, that he has a satiety, which means he has no needs, um, that he is immutable, he never changes. And so those are, those are the kind of transcendent qualities of who God is. Well, then we go down and we remember who we are. The Bible tells us a lot about who we are, that we are sinful and we're really needy. Um, and so, you know, the, the primary question of the Bible is how does sinful man live in relationship with a holy God? And that's where the nice truth, the second part of that chart comes in. We also know that God is loving. He's gentle. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's a healer. He's a redeemer. Um, and that he's a forgiver. And so, with that being said, that tells us that we're really valued and important to God. Our healing, our redemption is more valuable to God than the life of his own son, right? And so with that being said, that's the gospel there. That's the gospel that we as sinners can live in relationship with a holy God, can experience the healing and redemption of a holy, with a holy God because of Jesus, because of the way he expresses his forgiveness through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And that takes us to a place where we can trust God. And again, going back to the initial, uh, my initial fears, um, my initial fears, I feared that I would not be able to trust God in my worst nightmare, and the gospel, His Word, and the Holy Spirit was sufficient for me. So finally, the method of redemption. Um, method of redemption. Oh, sorry, I'm not going to go to the method of redemption. Hold on one second. All right, so this here, the sheet that you handed out, um, this, uh, this is the whole, this is the basis of where this book came from. In the month after Cameron died, 
I found myself saying to Lauren repeatedly, I have no idea how someone could survive something like this if they didn't believe in the sovereignty of God or if they didn't know about the grace of God or if they didn't know about the bodily resurrection or the possibility of joy and suffering or they didn't have the hope of heaven, so on and so forth. So basically I was constantly saying biblical doctrines as I was saying to her, like, this is what is helping me to survive. Like, this is what is giving me hope in the midst of indescribable pain. And so one night I just wrote down on a sheet of paper, gosh, I feel like I've been saying the same refrain over and over again. How could someone survive if they didn't believe in or didn't know about fill in the blank? So I wrote wrote them down on a sheet of paper. I was like, oh, that's good. There were 12 of them. And then I said, and then I decided what I would do is I would make a personal confession for myself. I would basically take these different truths and I would write them as they applied to my worst nightmare. Um, and so, so anyhow, as you go through, you say, for example, uh, the first one, the road ahead of me is long and painful, but Christ has defeated sin and death through the cross. I can face reality and make this journey because on the other side of the cross is resurrection. In the same way that Christ rose from the dead, so too can my life emerge from darkness into light. The gospel tells me that I cannot redeem myself. Only Christ can heal and free my heart. My only hope is to trust in him to do so. My tragedy has not disrupted the narrative of my life. My story remains God's story, and that is the story of redemption. Okay, so I wrote that, and this was just for myself, you know, and I would read this most days, and, um, and but this became, the, this became the backbone of the book. It was basically taking each one of those truths in this, and writing about how it is that um, how it is that the possibility of joy and suffering, how, why that is instrumental to hope in your worst nightmare, how it is that the sovereignty of God, why it is so important um, when you're in your worst. And honestly, uh, I wrote this like four months. I wrote I, I wrote the whole book, the first draft. There were like six revisions. Um, God helped the first revision, but. Um, but uh, uh, like about four months after Cameron had died. So it's very much, I was more right. I wasn't really thinking about like getting a book contract or thinking about an audience. I was honestly, this was really just me processing it for my own survival, um, for my own healing and, uh, and my own sense of hope. Okay, so finally, um, the, when we remember who God is, remember who we are, it takes us to the method of redemption, um, which is faith which is trust, trust in the Lord. And so the speaker says in verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. I think that wait is one of the most underrated words in the Christian faith, uh, particularly in the Christian life. Um, when you wait, you are not in control, right? That's why waiting for... Um, an Uber driver or waiting for somebody to pick you up or waiting on a plane or waiting in the TSA line at the airport. That's why it's so stressful, right? Because you're not in control. Well, with this kind of waiting of the speaker, it's not that he's not, it's not just that he's not in control. He says, I wait for the Lord. And so when we talk about biblical faith, it's a shift of control. It's not just I don't have control. It's now God has control. And so, um, and so he is trusting in the Lord to redeem him. Um, and he uses this metaphor. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. He repeats it, so we see emphasis there. And so um, the image here is, you know, in, 
in the city, they would have a wall and they'd have watchmen at night who would just sit there and see if anyone was coming to attack them. Uh, we know from the language and the context that this, um, this, there were three watches at night. This is the third watch, which is the last watch. Here's the thing. If you're on the first watch or the second watch, you are waiting for a person to relieve you from duty. All right? You're depending on a person. And they might show up five minutes late, you know, whatever. Um, but you're waiting on a person. If you're on the third watch, what are you waiting for? You're waiting for the sun to come up in the morning. Okay, the sun coming up in the morning, unless you're an Egyptian at the time of Moses for a couple of days, <laughs> but the sun coming up in the morning in the morning is completely undefeated. Like, the sun has never sat out a play. Um, and so with that being said, uh, he is saying that his confidence in the Lord uh, is more steadfast and more reliable than the sun coming up in the morning. Um, and so that, you know, with waiting, like with this kind of faith that redeems us, number one, we're not in control. God's in control. But number two, there is an expectation. There is an expectation that God can and will redeem us. And the thing that takes us, and, and that kind of faith gives you hope. That kind of faith where there's an expectation that God can and will redeem and restore you, that, that is a faith that gives you a sense of hope in your heart. That gives you a joy and a peace of like, hey, this is not fun right now. This is terrible. But God can and will redeem. He will redeem me. And it's remembering who God is that takes us to that place. We can see here um, at the end how the hope of redemption, how the speaker's heart has been restored. Remember at the beginning, he's calling out to God, uh, calling out to God in desperation. Hear me, Lord. Be attentive to my cry from the depths of woe. Let's look at how much his tone, the condition of his heart has changed. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord! Exclamation mark. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Okay? So he has come to a place. Now keep in mind, his circumstances have not changed. Circumstances haven't changed in eight verses, I don't think. Unless he wrote this over the course of 20 years. I don't think that's, I don't think that happened. His circumstances haven't changed. The consequences of his sin have not changed. The hard stuff he's going to have to go through has not changed. But look at how his heart has changed. His heart has changed that he is so confident that God is going to redeem and restore his life that he's able to turn his attention to other people and say, hey, Israel, look, let me tell you, God will redeem you. Put your hope in God. That is, and he says not just redemption, but plentiful redemption. He is overflowing. He is brimming with hope. And so that is how far God has taken him through his word. That is how far the Lord has taken him. And here's the thing. Everybody knows this. If, um, I, 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 would, I said this a lot. I said, you know, like, um, if, if I have hope, I'll be okay. If I've got hope in my heart that things can get better, that I can be healed, that my life's not over, that I'm not ruined, like, I'll be okay, you know? The, we, the, the, the physical and emotional uh, pain um, of, what, you know, of tragedy, I mean, it's really, really hard. But if you go through that without hope that things can get better, oh, that's much worse. That's much, much worse than the emotional or the physical pain that you're going through. If, however, 
you you have hope in your heart, then you you really you can always take the next next step forward. Uh, you can you can have a fruitful, um, non-ruined life, so to speak. And so um, to finish up here, do you have anything else to finish here? No, last slide. Just a, just a couple of just practical takeaway points. Um, the first practical takeaway I would say is, um, and this is a pretty self-explanatory and self-evident from this talk, is that your best friend before and in tragedy is the Word of God. It really is. Uh, and and the, in particular, the question of who God is. That, that is really the bedrock um, of having hope and tragedy. Um, and then... Along those lines, the Bible, but I would also say, too, um, a helpful resource is books about the attributes of God. Um, Tozer, A.W. Tozer, his book, The Attributes of God. Uh, A woman named Jen Wilkin, uh, she's written two books recently. One is called In His Image, and another is called None Like Him. Uh, uh, None Like Him is, is dedicated to the uh, non-communicable attributes of God, that, you know, things that are utterly transcendent, that are not like us. And in his image is attributes of God that we can be like, like that God's kind and compassionate. We can be like that. Um, so anyhow, those are a resource. Oh, sorry, my bad. Yeah. Um, first is A.W. Tozer, The Attributes of God. T-O-Z-E-R, I think. Is that right? Here, I'll just look it up on Google here. Yeah. Um, I think that's right. And then Jen Wilkin. Uh, she's pretty well known. She, um, she, uh, her, her book is, her two books are In His Image, and then the second one is None Like Him. Both are about the attributes of God. Great stuff. Um, so yeah. So that's all I have. Um, uh, any, um, anybody have any questions? Yes. Do you mean um, more bad things that happened, or do you mean new things that I learned? Because more bad things happen. Let me say, I was like, I don't, like, I don't know if I can share all that right now. Uh, I don't. Uh, you can talk about it if you want, but just how, how you've grown since the book was published. I know it's just like the other week, but just how you've grown since the book was published. Oh. Yeah. Oh, since the book was published. So that's been that's been a three three or four weeks. Um, I would say. Um, did I tell you this and I'm forgetting it? No. No, I, I would say it's... Um, oh, well, I would just say one thing that's kind of... Uh, and I'm going to talk about this in two weeks more. But one thing that's been a blessing is um, just to see, like... Hmm, how do you say this? That sounds like humble brag. Um, I would say just to see that, like, God has redemptive purposes in everything that happens, you know? I think that um, writing writing the book, I was really worried when it came out um, that uh, I would struggle with kind of pride and arrogance because you get a lot of you can get a lot of attention when you publish a book, and I have gotten a lot of attention, and that is to me kind of very that scares me a lot, um, just getting a big head. But I would say that um, hearing like people who have had horrible 
horrible things happen to them. And now the Lord is kind of using Cam's, minist- Cam's testimony in his life to help them. It's like very, very humbling. And um, I would also say in reading it myself, uh, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, God gets all the credit for this because I'm really not capable of writing um, at this level. I'm not really like a great writer. I was like a B plus, A minus English student. Um, so anyhow, I, I've been really humbled by the Lord using it and um, whatnot. I don't know if that was a helpful answer or if that just came off really braggy or Christianese, but anyhow, so yeah, there you go. Uh, any other? Yes? Um, Cameron, I'm curious. You know, you talked about that anticipating your worst. Yeah. And now you've lived, you're living through your worst. Has that changed the way you anticipate more worst or... I mean, are you more, are you different in that way? Yeah, I think I have, I think there's a little, you know, you know, you kind of start to go down the slippery slope. I think there's more of a built-in kind of like stopping point of going down the slippery slope because I'm kind of like, I'm like, oh my goodness, what if this happened again? And I'm like, okay, well, that's what I thought beforehand. And it did happen and I'm okay. And, um, And, you know, if it happened again, it would be awful again. And I would not be very excited about having to go through that. But I also like know that the Lord's grace would be sufficient there. I think this term, provisional grace, it's in the first chapter. And it's probably the most important thing. It's the thing when I show up at someone's door or show up at the hospital and something really bad has happened, it's the thing I tell people. And that is, like, hey, like for people right now who you're thinking about your worst nightmare, and it's terrifying. Well, the reason it's terrifying, you can't imagine, it's because you're not in it. Like God gives you grace for what he calls you to. So if God calls you to a tragic circumstance, if that's what comes into your life, then he'll give you grace in that moment. But he's not going to give you grace now for a tragic circumstance because you're not in it. You don't need it right now. And so I think knowing that, like, um, I kind of have, I knew that, but now I've experienced that. Uh, and so I think that I'm able to catch myself as, I still go down the slippery slope like any other human being or any other parent. But having no, having experienced provisional grace is uh, it's, it's really helpful. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Aunt Louise. Checks, checks in the mail. She's, she's from the sales team. Um, one thing I would say, too, is that um, everybody has their worst, and no one needs to be ashamed of that. You know, if, um, you know, if, if your worst is that uh, you got rejected from law school uh, and you're trying to figure out what's the next step, then that's your worst, and God meets you in that, um, and God uses that for... You know, whatever's next. If your worst is you've been stuck in a job you're not very excited about, that's the worst, most, you know, humbling thing or most despair-filling thing you experience. You don't need to be ashamed of that, you know? That's your worst. And uh, and so I think that we all... For me, my worst in high school was like the breakup of a girl. It was like, forget Chernobyl! So-and-so who I went out with three times dumped me, you know? Um, so anyhow... Uh, so yeah, I I just think we know I, 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 we all need hope regardless of you know how bad our worst is. Um, probably should pray.
and we can go. We do have a little book release event um, Thursday the 16th down here at the church. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the story of how the book came to be, and uh, there will be some music. And um, I know you'll all be standing in line for my autograph to sign your book. (laughs) Right. Anyhow. Okay. So let's pray. All right, Jesus, you're incredibly good and kind to us, and you are a God, um, a faithful God who does no wrong, and upright and just are you. And um, I pray, Lord, we all we all are healing in different ways. We all are mourning things. Um, we all have questions and doubts. And help us. I pray that you give us, provide for your grace. More than anything, I pray that you'd remind us of who you are, uh, that we would look to the person of Jesus Christ and, uh, and to your life, death, and resurrection, that we'd look to you. Um, for the, the very image of the invisible God. And uh, for all of us, I pray that we would all have peace, hope, and joy in our hearts that would abound. I ask your spirits in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.